Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Martine Bailey, whose latest mystery, The Almanac, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Martine. Oh, hello there, Lenny. Would you start us off by just reading a brief excerpt from your book? I will do. Just to set the scene, it's midsummer in England in 1752, and we're in a modest back room of a cottage where my heroine, Tabitha, has arrived home from London to find her widowed mother dead. And at this point, she's keeping vigil through the night beside her mother's body and is worried enough to search out her mother's almanac. Tabitha unfastened her mother's box. A sheet of fresh paper fell out, newly inked in a large and fine hand. She read it rapidly, puzzling over its dedication. A riddle for Mistress Heart. I see you as you watch and spy, consumed with curiosity, a maggot feeding on the dead and feasting on calamity. Don't think you'll end my sovereign power. Tis you whom worms will soon devour. D. Tabitha read it twice again. Who could have sent her mother so vile a threat? It confirmed the truth. Her mother had been terrified, had pleaded with her to return, and she had done so too late. She closed her eyes tight and rocked herself in the chair. For a long spell she hated her own self, her vanity and self-regard. The loathsome verse still lay on her lap. Who might this D be? Her mind raced through a dozen possibilities. Then reaching into the bottom of the box, she found the current edition of De Angelo's Almanac. Tabitha opened it with a new wariness. There were the usual familiar pages, the twelve signs of the zodiac, the list of kings and queens, and the astrological judgments upon the year. And there, as she had always done, her mother had neatly penned her observations in the margins and spaces of every single day. The year of 1752 had begun dully enough, save for a remark at Ash Wednesday that she had awaited Tabitha's letter for a whole month. Otherwise, it was much as any other year. I visited old Seth, he's gaining strength, and I wrote in the Book of Mortalities how Mistress Cox did die in childbed. Tabitha almost slipped over the first indication of her mother's unease. First of May. Beside this, her mother had written, Woke tonight in great fear. I know who killed Towler and why. Towler? Who was he? She knew no one of that name in the village. Was he a newcomer or a passing traveller? She read on rapidly until, a month later, her mother's cramped handwriting spoke again of her fears. Tabitha lifted the candle and read the words twice to be certain of their import. 8th of June, Whit Sunday. I believe the culprit has marked me. He looked at me hard and knowing. He followed me here this night and I stood silent behind the door, very afeard. Tabitha hurried on, rifling through pages. Here was another, 24th of June. D followed me silently in the woods with that crafty boy beside him, but I retraced my way to Nanny Seagoes and stayed with her. Then, only three days ago, 
how more easy. Thee paid me no heed today upon the high street. Perhaps it's all a lonely woman's fancy. And there it was, yesterday, the final entry on the day on which her mother had drowned. 30th of July. Thee watched me today with a secret eye when no one else was looking. I must stay indoors till Tabitha comes. Tabitha clapped her hand over her mouth and swayed, her gorge rising. When she laid hands upon this D, she would rend him limb from limb. Thanks, Martine. Could you start by talking about where the character of Tabitha came from? Yes. Um, well, Tabitha is uh, in some ways a typical country girl who's gone away to London to try and search for a better life. And uh, in that time, she's been a, a sort of a good time girl, really, and not always stayed within the law. So to some extent, she was typical of the time in that this was quite a well-known phenomenon that girls turned up in the capital. Um, and we see, for instance, in Hogarth's engravings, you know, girls coming off the coach and being taken into, uh, into vice. Um, but, I mean, Tabitha is you know, becomes and develops into a very uh, courageous and, and charming young woman. Um, and really, that's, uh, that was the origin of her and moving beyond those areotypes into uh, a more fully developed character. And in the book, her mother and then Tabitha assume the role of a village searcher. Could you explain to our listeners what that job entails? Yes. I came across this job really when I was looking into, you know, funeral rites of, of the time. And I came across this notion of the older women of the village who become responsible for laying out the bodies of the dead. And they were employed by the local parish also to determine the cause of death and enter them on the records. So that struck me as a very interesting role for uh, a character in a, in a crime novel to take. So, uh, they could both read and write, fortunately, so they become quite, um, you know, important characters in terms of, uh, you know, the, the murders in the village. And how did you go about researching what the work of a village searcher actually was like? Well, I, uh, I, I could only look at records, of course. I went on a, on a course looking at reading parish records because, in fact, they're quite difficult to read with the the uh, you know the ancient handwriting so that was very useful that our local archives office ran that but in terms of living in a village although I live in a modern village in Cheshire in England it was also really useful to go and become a farmer's wife was one of the things I did at Acton Scott uh, Museum in Shropshire in England where the BBC film a program called the Victorian Farm and that was a chance to you know a bunch of us to dress up and churn the butter and collect the eggs and look after livestock. And it really got me thinking not only about the practical activities we were doing, but also how time seems somewhat different when you're pursuing those, uh, those jobs, that everything is dictated by nature rather than the clock. Were you interested in sort of almanacs as they were used at the time, before you started the book or after you started it and thought that that would be something that would work to be integrated into your plot? Well, I wasn't particularly interested in almanacs. I think that like a lot of people, I didn't know much about them apart from 
modern versions, which are, you know, quite odd and garish. Uh, whereas the original almanac, certainly in the 18th century, uh, I found fascinating. If your listeners don't know, there were little pocket-sized books that combined calendars, astronomy and predictions. And certainly as far as books are concerned, in, in Britain they outsold even the Bible. So they were read by many people who read little else. And as a historical fiction writer, it was wonderful to learn about what people were interested in. So it was crops and herbal remedies and weather predictions. And in fact, I managed to pick up a really nice uh, almanac on eBay for £20, uh, an old Vox Delarum, uh, The Voice of the Stars. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, that, that was fascinating. But beforehand, no, I, I didn't know an awful lot about them. And in the course of your research, did you learn much about what almanacs were like, say, in the century before when your book is set in, in the 1730s, 1750s, I'm sorry? Yeah, my, my book uh, was in 1752. Uh, so, yes, I mean, the real peak, uh, the first peak was in the, uh, the previous century because Britain was involved in a civil war. Um, and like most, um, you know, events like that, there's an awful lot of propaganda going around. So they were particularly used to argue the two sides between, you know, the king and, and the uh, the Commonwealth, as it was called in Britain. So there was a whole sort of underground press feel, I think, to, to those almanacs. And that continues to some extent in in my the century I'm writing in 1752, where it, they're quite subversive. The humour is quite subversive. You know, it's very much about something of pleasure, I think, in seeing our leaders and our great men falling. So, um, yeah, that, that's an incredibly long history, I think, going back to, you know, when you go in old cave paintings of, of people putting dots on the wall representing the sun and moon. It's, we've, we've always wanted to watch those seasonal changes and mark them, really. And at what point in, in British history did they become less popular? Obviously, when they're out selling the Bible, it's sort of the peak of their popularity. Yeah. But I'm wondering when people turned, whether it was to Penny Dreadfuls or, or, or you know, newspapers or some other source uh, for knowledge or just reading entertainment. Well, I think what happened, uh, so far as I can ascertain, is there was a great peak in the 18th century around, you know, the whole entertainment and the riddles and the enigmas and education, really. Uh, but a big moral backlash in the 19th century against the what was seen as rather silly and irrational kind of means of, of spreading information. So there was, you know, a serious move against them and uh, this whole idea of fortune telling in particular uh, was began to be outlawed and, and laughed at and scoffed at. So I don't think it was I mean, there's a whole argument that that was to do with the Industrial Revolution as well and machines and clock time and all this sort of thing. But I don't think it was till the 1930s that there was something of a revival, whether that was a sort of interest in occultism, I, I'm not quite sure. It's a bit beyond my era, but I do know um, that uh, very interesting, again, to look at those uh, you know, mid-20th century almanacs. 
So you referred to the almanacs being full of sort of riddles and puzzles, and the excerpt you read from your book contained a riddle from uh, the mysterious D. Yeah. Uh, but you also entertained the readers of your book by having a riddle essentially before each chapter. Uh, what gave you the idea to do that, and what function does that serve in your book? Well, the riddles are partly there to uh, illustrate, you know, the the genuine feel of an almanac. I've, I've obviously tried to um, show with these various chapter headings and bits of astronomy and saints' days what it felt like to look at an almanac. Uh, but the riddles, I found very interesting, I must say. I mean, they're one of the oldest forms of wordplay. So we think of Tolkien or Harry Potter. And I think that's because... Uh, a riddle is a question, isn't it? It's who am I? What am I? Composed in this sort of puzzling, obscure way. And it just struck me as a perfect theme for a murder mystery, this first riddle, who am I, in which a heroine must unmask a killer. So as you say, the book opens with, um, you know, well, it has with one of 50 historical riddles, along with, of course, 50 solutions uh, at the end. But as I say, there was a, a genuine riddle mania in mid-18th century English society. People wrote them, people read them in groups, not necessarily. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a solitary activity like crosswords. So, in fact, uh, one thing I found interesting was rereading Jane Austen's Emma, which seems to me a long play on the whole idea of the riddle about love, where people are collecting together to join up and... Um, contribute enigmas and charades and conundrums for a written collection and that was quite a common uh, activity for people at the time obviously uh, before television <laughs> so uh, I hope I won't embarrass myself by saying that when I sort of did my score at the end of the book I, I actually didn't do too well out of all the 50 I don't know how you did when you uh, first encountered the riddles in terms of solving them absolutely they're not easy uh, there's a bit of a knack to some of them, uh, the ones where, you know, I, I could read one in a minute and, and explain it. But I think they had a very, very high level of literacy. And in fact, when you look at those um, 18th century almanacs, the more middle class ones, the, you know, I mean, the mathematical puzzles that they used to entertain themselves are way beyond way beyond any normal person today. They obviously enjoyed geometry and algebra and everything. But uh, no, they're difficult. So I obviously had the advantage of generally having the answer there. All right. Well, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I hope you sort of, did you, you know, get a sense of the, uh, well, well, the level at which these people, these are quite ordinary people were solving these things. Yeah, I guess that's one of the things that sort of surprised me is, and I guess it speaks to my sort of ignorance, but, you know, the fact that the almanacs sold so well and were read so widely and contained these, you know, riddles that were more than, you know, sort of nursery rhyme type puzzles sort of speaks to a level of literacy and uh, education that I guess I would did not have the impression was as widespread as it apparently was. Yes, uh, yes, I agree. Shall I just try one and a sure. easy one um, because there's a bit of a knack to working them out so here's an example and this one you solve in a way that's similar to do, do you know charades we play charades here at Christmas 
So working out the first part of the word and then the second part and then joining it together to make a solution. So when you hear first and second, you know that those are two parts of a word. So here it is. My first is the part of the day. My second at feasts overflows. In a cottage, my whole is often seen to measure old time as he goes. Just to explain that, my first is part of the day. So that's a part of the day, like a second, a minute, or in this case, an hour. My second at feast overflows. There's obviously some sort of liquid on the table, so it's a glass. So in a cottage, my whole is often seen. We know we've got hour plus glass, so it's an hourglass to measure old time as he goes. So from that, it, the answer's hourglass. It's interesting to me that we can all, all, we can tell from that that people would very often have an hourglass in a cottage, presumably because they couldn't have afford a pocket watch and maybe they would hear the church bells and use the hourglass to to work out time from then just the sort of thing i'm interested in that's all lenny (laughs) that's great as you did your research into the period was there something that sort of stood out as as surprising you the most uh, about how people lived at the time um yeah i think one of the big surprises for me was again this uh the loss of the 11 days in 1752 uh because it's the book set in 1752 so that i could play around with this calendar confusion because at the beginning of the year uh britain was still using the julian calendar while much of the rest of europe had changed to the gregorian calendar so basically britain was lagging behind both solar time and um dare I say the word, a bit like Brexit, we were, uh, you know, having difficulties in trading with Europe because, you know, documents were 11 days different. Uh, Sometimes even the year was different because some years started in March, some years started in January. And any genealogists hearing this will know know what I mean. So they brought in the act, uh, this loss of 11 days, so people literally went to bed on the 2nd of September and woke upon the 14th of September. And of course, it struck me as a great opportunity to play with time and deception. Uh, And of course, it happened in your country as well, didn't it? In colonial America, which I didn't actually know till till I looked this up. Thinking about it, it did surprise me that although there weren't riots or anything, there were difficulties so people lost their birthdays their paydays um apprentices maybe coming to the end of their term at that time so there was a lot of confusion and a lot of worry about it and in fact in the city where i live in chester uh, there was confusion about the mayor's election day and that had needed an act of parliament to put right but at a deeper level i think there was a theory that it caused, again, this big rift between the old natural time based on the seasons, the sun and moon, and it brought in this sort of tyranny of time or was a step towards this tyranny of time that we all feel now with you know, digital clocks and the engines driving our lives and computers and things. Because when the calendar changed, of course, everything was sort of 11 days later 
So, for example, we had a Michaelmas feast in, in England then uh, that many people wouldn't accept the new date because Michaelmas was about eating goose and the geese weren't fat enough. So people celebrated both days. And the same with Christmas. It took many years because it was much less likely to snow on the new Christmas day, which is 6th of January, than on the 25th of December. So sometimes there is a theory that we still long for snow in Britain at Christmas, but it rarely happens because our sort of folk memory is of the 6th of January if that makes sense. Yes. How did writing the Almanac compare with the other books that you've written? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, An Appetite for Violets was a work of complete obsession based on cookery and lost recipes. Um, it took me a long time uh, because I learned to do Georgian cookery um, and I wanted to really be able to depict a cook in those days without just making it up. So I got in touch with a TV um, food historian. It took a long time also because there were a lot of places that I visited it could, because my cook goes on a journey across Europe. Uh, Night, Taste for Nightshade um, was a difficult book because I was living in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, so again, I made that a bit easier by including... Um, convict life in Australia and, and a shipwreck in New Zealand and that that was great so this time of course it was easier because I live in Cheshire and Chester um, but yeah I'd say it was it was a little bit easier than the others uh, and a great pleasure because the almanac sort of got under my skin so um, I mean I'd wake up at night and look at the moon and, and I could began to sort of understand the phases of the moon and look at the constellations. So there was a lot of personal pleasure in, in writing it. Well, thank you for your time today, Martine, and thank you, listeners. The book, again, is Martine Bailey's The Almanac, published by Severn House. Please join us again for the next LitCast.